Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 51, The War of Resistance, 1937 to 1945. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. As always, I want to thank our Patreon sponsors and those who have made one-time contributions to the website for helping to make this podcast possible. If you enjoy this podcast and learning about the Cold War, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter or making a donation through our website at www.historythecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Want to skip over these ads and get straight to the history? Consider becoming a Patreon contributor to get the commercial-free episodes. Last episode, we reviewed the rise of nationalist China and its leader, Chiang Kai-shek. We spoke about Chiang's subjugation of northern China and the northern expedition, the establishment of the nationalist government in Nanking, and their early rule of China and what came to be known as the Nanking Decade from 1927 to 1937. We also covered the brutal split between the nationalists and the communists and the white terror. We spoke about the rise of Mao as the leader of the Chinese Communist Party and the escape of the Chinese Communist Party from southern China to remote northwest China. Indeed, by 1936, the communists were on the verge of destruction, but Mao had a strategy to combat the nationalists. He just needed a ceasefire and some time to rebuild his forces and to secure his leadership of the party. But how? The easiest justification for a ceasefire was an alliance against the Japanese who had captured Manchuria in 1931. If you recall from episode 46, Japan had launched a war of aggression starting in 1931 to secure markets and natural resources for Japan's economy in an effort to curb the effects of the Great Depression. Chiang, though, decided he couldn't fight both the communists and the Japanese at the same time and felt that the communists were a more dangerous enemy. As he said, quote, the Japanese are a disease of the skin versus the communists who are a disease of the heart, close quote. Therefore, Chiang adopted a campaign of nonviolent resistance and appeasement when it came to Japan. He would wipe out the communists first and then turn to deal with the Japanese. Had the Japanese limited their expansion to Manchuria, they might have been able to cut a deal with Chiang to make common cause of containment of the Soviet Union and the elimination of communism in China. Or if they had been a little bit more patient, they could have waited for Chiang to finish off the communists and then invaded China proper letting Chiang take care of the communists for them. Nevertheless, the Japanese had failed to read Chinese history. If they had, they would have realized that the Manchus and the Mongols, who had both conquered China, had done their utmost to keep their Chinese subjects divided, correctly understanding a united Chinese people would overthrow any minority ruler. Many Chinese, even those in the Nationalist Party, wanted to stand up to Japanese aggression and provocations. Students demonstrated in the streets and called for a war with Japan. Some 900,000 signed a petition for the nationalists to fight the Japanese. Chinese grew increasingly outraged over the government's tolerance of Japanese actions. Many Chinese called for an end to violence between the Chinese Communist Party and the Kuomintang and for all Chinese to stand united against Japanese aggression. The Soviets also had an interest in propping up China against Japan. The Anti-Comintern Pact had been a treaty signed by Germany and Japan, in this pact, Japan and Germany vowed to not sign any treaty with the Soviet Union and to consult each other if the Soviet Union attacked either one of them and to collaborate in the fight against international communism. While Germany also agreed to recognize the Japanese puppet government in Manchuria, Stalin concluded these diplomatic moves were a clear threat to the Soviet Union. Moreover, the Soviet Union faced the distinct danger of a two-front war with both Germany and Japan. Therefore, Stalin called for a creation of a second united front between the nationalists and the communists to stand up to the Japanese. 
The nationalists were open to negotiations with the Soviets as a counterbalance to the Japanese, but Chiang was intent on wiping out the Chinese communists. Chiang thus traveled to northern China to prepare for the Sixth Encirclement Campaign and the final destruction of the Chinese communists, stopping in Qian to conference with his generals. On the morning of December the 12th, just as Chiang had completed his morning exercises in his temple residence a few miles from Xi'an, the sound of gunfire alerted him that something was amiss. Chiang had concluded that the local warlord had betrayed him, and he was right. Together with two of his bodyguards, Chiang climbed out over an outside wall into a moat. But the moat was far deeper than he had anticipated, and he hurt his back to such an extent that he was unable to move for a few moments. Under the morning fog, they crawled to hide in a small cave, but were soon discovered and captured. They threatened to kill Chang if he did not agree to fight the Japanese, but Chang refused to agree to anything until he was freed. As a result of his imprisonment, Chang had a religious experience. He refused food and water and the services of a doctor to look at his back. His only request was for a Bible. He confessed his sins and shortcomings to God and prayed that if God had really chosen him to lead China, he would show him a sign. God... Destiny, Luck, or Stalin did one better and got him freed in an agreement to form a united front with the communists against the Japanese. After this episode, Chang devoutly believed that he had been chosen by God to lead China to salvation. Mao and Zhou Enlai wanted to organize a show trial of Chang and execute him, but Stalin worried that if Chang was removed from power or killed, a different, more pro-Japanese faction might take charge of the nationalist movement. Moreover, if Chiang was murdered, it would make peace between the nationalists and the communists nearly impossible in the near term. Stalin threw his full support behind Chiang, arguing that what he had done to the Chinese communists was wrong, but Chiang had made progress in unifying China and had been firm in standing up to Japanese aggression. Chiang's wife negotiated with his captors, and various verbal promises were made, which boiled down to a communist recognition of Chiang Kai-shek as leader of China and an end to nationalist anti-communist operations and financial support for the communists to fight the the Japanese, as well as the removal of pro-Japanese leaders in the nationalist government. Chang never forgave the general that had betrayed him, but he never executed him either. Instead, he kept him under house arrest for the rest of his life. Chang kept his promise and prepared for war with Japan. Many of Chang's advisors argued against fighting Japan. They knew that China was not ready for a war against Japan. Chiang was not ignorant of this fact. He knew that the weight of the fighting would fall to the nationalists, despite communist promises of guerrilla attacks. Nonetheless, Chiang also came to believe that peace was now impossible with Japan. Japan and China had incompatible visions of Asia's future. Chiang feared correctly that Japan wanted to colonize China. He knew further compromise with Japan would only strengthen Japan's position in the coming war. This left two choices, fight or be eliminated. The only question was where and when to start resisting Japanese aggression. It should also be noted that both Chiang and Mao believed that the Soviet Union would join the war against Japan. Stalin had made promises of support, but for geopolitical reasons, Stalin intended to have China fight Japan so you would not have to, preserving his forces for any potential war with Germany. Mao and Chiang had swallowed Stalin's bait and would fight Japan alone. The Soviets did, however, sign a non-aggression pact with nationalist China and guaranteed that neither the Soviet Union nor China would cut a separate deal with Japan, alleviating fears Chiang had of a pact between the Soviets and Japanese, dividing China between the two of them. The Soviets also returned Chiang Kai-shek's son, who had traveled to study in the Soviet Union in 1925, 
but had been a virtual prisoner since his father had turned on the Chinese communists in 1927. Chiang's son was irreplaceable, as he could not have any more children, and China was a patriarchal society at the time. Despite communist bluster, for the duration of much of the Second Sino-Japanese War, the communists remained largely an insurgency. They only developed large conventional forces after the end of the war against Japan, when the Soviets delivered sufficient armaments to engage in conventional military operations. The communist rural base simply could not produce the weaponry needed. The communists were dependent on what aid the Soviets could give them and what they could capture and steal. However, this was Mao's strategy. Letting the nationalists bear the brunt of the fighting, hoping the Japanese and the Kuomintang would weaken each other, allowing for a communist victory. No communist units fought at Shanghai or Nanking. Throughout the fighting, Mao insisted his forces would only fight as guerrillas. Indeed, in 1937, the 8th Route Army was ordered to devote 70% of its efforts to organizing the countryside, 20% to fighting the nationalists, and only 10% to fighting the Japanese. The Soviet arms and supplies that were given to Mao were saved for the eventual war with Chiang. By the communists' own estimates of the 1 million Chinese casualties by 1938, only 31,000 were communist. By 1944, that number would only reach 110,000. Worse still, the nationalists were subsidizing communist forces through much of the war. In 1937, the nationalists provided some 600,000 yuan, which covered 70% of the 8th Route Army's budget, 1937 to 1940. Even when Stalin begged Mao to launch an offensive in 1941 against the Japanese, as he feared they might join the Germans in the conquest of the Soviet Union, Mao declined. In July 1937, some seven months after Chiang's release, fighting broke out amongst the Chinese and the Japanese. These, quote, incidents, as they were termed, were not unusual by the 1930s. Small skirmishes would often break out between Japanese and Chinese troops. Typically, though, the Chinese would back down and the incident would be resolved, such as the first Shanghai incident, which, when fighting broke out between the Chinese and the Japanese in 1932. This time was different, though. After the Allied victory over China in 1900, the Allied governments won the right to keep small garrisons around Beijing to protect their embassies and citizens. Most nations had withdrawn their troops by the 1930s, but Japan chose to maintain a garrison there. These troops would often march around the city and the surrounding area in a clear affront to Chinese sovereignty. On the night of July the 7th, 1937, while on patrol, the Japanese lost one of their soldiers near the famed Marco Polo Bridge. In an attempt to locate him and suspecting foul play, they demanded to search the positions of the Chinese 29th Army. The Chinese refused and gunfire broke out between the two sides. The Japanese called in reinforcements and attacked the Chinese positions. By morning, they found the missing soldier who had wandered off to take a pee, but had become disorientated and lost in the dark. This, along with Archduke Ferdinand's limo driver making a wrong turn that led to his assassination, is an example of how random events helped to shape the 20th century. Despite locating the lost soldier whose bathroom break sparked one of the most violent conflicts in human history, the fighting did not cease. The Japanese now demanded the Chinese withdraw their troops from the area. The Chinese began to do so, but in the confusion, the Japanese shelled the area, killing more Chinese. This time, though, Chiang did not de-escalate the situation, nor did he back down. Coming to the conclusion, if you give the Japanese an inch, they will want a foot. The fact that the war had started on the seventh day of the seventh month of the seventh year was an omen in superstitious China, as the number seven was said to represent fire, 
bitterness, burning, war, blood, and the color red. The Japanese got the message and were angered by such a Chinese affront. They sent in three divisions in July, followed by two more in August, as fighting around Beijing spread to Shanghai. On July the 28th, they began a general offensive across China over an area equivalent to the eastern seaboard of the United States. Japanese troops captured Beijing and Tianjin two days later. The Japanese did not anticipate that they had entered a total war with China. They assumed it was akin to the incidences between Japan and China in the past and that the issue would be solved in a month. The Japanese imperial staff believed that with three divisions they could destroy the Nationalist Army over the course of the summer. These optimistic predictions reflected Japan's modern experience with war. In the first Sino-Japanese War, they had defeated the Chinese in a matter of months. The Boxer Rebellion had been a year war, as had the Russo-Japanese War. In World War I, the Japanese conquest of Qingdao and the islands in the Pacific had been over in a few months. In 1931, when Japan gobbled up Manchuria, in a few months they faced very little opposition. Indeed, Japan had not yet fought a modern total war like the Europeans had experienced in the First World War. Yet they underestimated the Nationalist Army and the resolve of Chiang. Japan's opponents in 1895, 1900, and 1905 had been internally divided like the Qing and the Romanov. Germany in 1914 was half a world away, distracted with events closer to home. China was politically divided and had its problems, but was far stronger opponent in 1937 versus 1895. Moreover, Japan's aims in those wars were much clearer, smaller, and realistic. China was also a very different nation in 1895 versus 1937. The Chinese intelligentsia were no longer the old mandarins of the Qing imperial court, but were educated in Europe and America. They had as much of an understanding of modern war as Japan. Moreover, China had a more literate people and had developed a mass media that was written in an accessible vernacular versus classical Chinese. This, coupled with the growth of roads and railroads, had helped to build a sense of nation throughout China as it had in Europe and America in the 19th century. Every act of Japanese brutality was now reported in the media and spread quickly, even to the illiterate, as people traveled throughout China. Moreover, because of Japan's past experiences, Japan's army stressed willpower over technological development to deliver quick victories. Logistical issues such as providing rations, transport, and protection for mer merchant ships or the ability to garrison large armies received very little attention. As a result of this, Japan's armies lived off the land, unlike the Japanese army in 1895, looting farms and robbing the civilian population. The Japanese also turned to drug trafficking with the growth of the import of opium to try and pay for their operations in China. Over the course of 1937, Japan doubled the number of divisions in China, deploying 600,000 additional men into China and 20 divisions plus another two divisions in Korea, bringing the total number of troops in mainland Asia to 950,000 men. Meanwhile, they saw Japanese casualties spike to 100,000 by the end of 1937. Despite the Japanese capture of Beijing and Tianjin, the main advance of the Japanese army was directed south to Shanghai. Chiang chose to make a serious stand here versus Beijing or Tianjin as Shanghai was more valuable to the nationalist economy and as a port to foreign aid from Russia. Moreover, Shanghai had the largest concentration of businesses in China and was a large source of tax revenue. Furthermore, his troops there outnumbered the Japanese. He had the chance of wiping out the local Japanese garrison before Japanese reinforcements arrived. Fighting there might disrupt Western trade as the Europeans and Americans had concessions in the city. 
If Japan threatened Western interests in the city, it could bring one of them in as an ally. Chang knew all this was a long shot, but given his options, Shanghai was the best place for him to make a serious stand. From August the 13th until November the 12th, fighting raged in Shanghai. The campaign was amongst the largest of the war. The Japanese used poison gas on at least 13 occasions, and even though they signed the 1899 and 1907 Hague Conventions, which banned its use. Indeed, the Japanese also turned to other exotic and terrible weapons, such as biological weapons, with the notorious Unit 731. By 1938, Japan had used chemical weapons some 39 times, and had tried to spread anthrax, the plague, typhoid, and cholera amongst the Chinese people. As the belligerents in World War I had discovered, though, using poison gas was difficult, and you could kill your own people by accident if not deployed properly. So Japan used chemical weapons far less after 1938. Its use, though, appalled Chinese and Western public opinion, fueling Chinese hatred and furthering Japan's diplomatic isolation. By the time Shanghai fell, some 9,115 Japanese soldiers had died, and 31,257 had been wounded. Chang's forces suffered 187,200 casualties, including 70% of his young officers. After the fall of Shanghai, provincial capitals began to fall like dominoes to the Japanese. These provincial capitals were important as they represented the road and rail hubs of the country as the Japanese moved up the Yangtze to attack Nanking, the nationalist capital, on December the 1st, occupying the city December the 13th. On the road from Shanghai to Nanking, Japanese troops were ordered to treat all Chinese civilians as belligerents and to kill them and destroy their homes. Setting them ablaze, those who tried to put out the fires were executed. Those Chinese soldiers captured were burned alive and girls and women were raped. The rape of Nanking lasted for six weeks. The number of deaths are highly debated, but the Japanese claimed that only 45,000 to 65,000 had died, whereas the Chinese cite a number of 300,000, with rapes ranging from 4 to 20,000. Anticipating the Japanese drive towards Nanking, the nationalists had evacuated their government farther up the Yangtze to Wuhan. Many, such as Vong Jingvi, and other leading intellectuals called on Chang to sue for peace and to recognize the Japanese conquest of Manchuria via diplomatically recognizing the Japanese puppet government of Manchukuo. However, under international law, once a country recognizes a territory as independent or belonging to another, it is extremely difficult to reverse the decision, especially as such a move may only placate the Japanese before they declare war again for a new issue in two or three years. Chang believed that Japan's ultimate goal was not to secure its sphere of influence in Manchuria, but to conquer all of China, making the Chinese their slaves. Therefore, he had to fight, despite the weaknesses of his armies, versus the Japanese. The brutality with which the Japanese also attempted to conquer China also made peace more difficult and embittered the Chinese population to the rule. They had sought to intimidate the Chinese, but it only made them more nationalistic, driving many into the arms of the communists. It also ruined relations with the Western powers, isolating Japan diplomatically, and garnering support for China's war of resistance. Many other Chinese elites wanted to sue for peace as well, but thought Japan's demands went too far and hence continued their support of the nationalists. Moreover, despite the deaths of 300,000-plus at this point, it was nothing to what the Europeans had suffered in the First World War, and the nationalists argued this fact in the media and in speeches to steal the resolve of the Chinese people.
1938, Japan had 34 divisions, or 1.1 million men deployed to China, which steadily increased to roughly 1,650,000 troops by 1941. Despite their victories in capturing Beijing and Nanking, Japan was frustrated in the fact that China refused to surrender, nor were they reaping the imagined economic benefits they thought the conquest of China would bring to them. The bustling trading ports and cities they had hoped to capture were now bombed-out landscapes. The cost of the war had continued to grow, and the Japanese economy slid back into recession. The Nationalists also adopted the tactic of a scorched earth, destroying anything of value to the Japanese as they retreated. Those in favor of scorched earth cited the example of Russia's defeat of Napoleon in 1812, the Boer War in the early 20th century, and numerous examples from Chinese history. Nevertheless, this was a controversial strategy as it fell disproportionately on the peasants. The communists and others criticized the policy fiercely. China economically had been significantly damaged. Most of its prosperous and rich cities had been captured, and the economy had imploded. The nationalists tried their best to move what industries they could inland, but they had lost some 87% of their industrial capacity. The Japanese occupation also deprived the nationalist government of 90% of their former tax revenues from customs, salt, excise, alcohol, and cigarettes. In 1937, the nationalists were already running a government deficit of 37%. By 1939, spending had grown by one-third, while revenues had fallen by two-thirds. As the war escalated, Chinese borrowing no longer fueled investment but consumption. The value of the nationalist yuan plummeted against the dollar from 30 cents to the dollar in 1937 to 4 cents to the dollar by 1941. The nationalists, like the Japanese and the communists, turned to the production of opium, which they had previously tried to ban as a new source of government revenue. It was legalized for medicinal purposes with heavy taxes levied against it. 1938 through 1939 also saw renewed fighting between the nationalists and the communists, although the Soviets brokered a truce rescuing the Second United Front. Japan, seeing that a clear military victory was beyond their reach without the committal of immense resources and manpower, switched tracks to a political and siege strategy. Japan now endorsed regime change in China. They would no longer recognize the Kuomintang and Chiang Kai-shek. Instead, they sought to establish puppet regimes throughout China. Japan wanted to pursue a policy very much akin to the British conquest of India. The Japanese imagined a China with some areas under direct Japanese rule and other areas under the rule of puppet rulers and regimes loyal to Tokyo. Similar to the princely states in India, spears of Japanese economic and political influence with foreign policies subservient to Japan. They also believed that with the natural resources, manpower, and markets of China, they could secure the economic security of Japan and its ability to stand up to the Soviet Union, Great Britain, or the United States in any future war. Japan would no longer be at an economic or manpower disadvantage versus these other great powers. Chinese strategy at this point was to fight a protracted war of attrition, hoping to tempt the Japanese further inland away from their bases of supply and away from the rail hubs, which they were dependent on for goods. This would also result in the Japanese need to garrison large areas which guerrilla forces could more effectively attack. While China could not defeat Japan militarily, they could deny Japan the political victory she so desperately sought. After the fall of Shanghai and Nanking, Wuhan became the focus of the national strategy. Forces were deployed there and the outer approaches were fortified. The Japanese general staff instructed Japanese commanders to halt their advance as they didn't want to expand operations to central China. Theater commanders, though, said they needed to pursue nationalist forces and chase Chinese 
forces further into China. Ultimately, overstretched, they were defeated outside of Wuhan. These minor victories could not have come at a better time for the Nationalists. These small wins gave a morale boost to the Nationalists and made the situation look less helpless. The Nationalists followed up with a counterattack on the Japanese. The counterattack failed because of poor Chinese coordination, but it surprised the Japanese as they had assumed the Chinese were on their last legs. This provoked the Japanese general staff to abandon their hesitation about expanding operations in central China. They subsequently deployed additional troops to bring up the total number of troops to 400,000 in central China. The new Japanese plan called for a battle of annihilation. That summer, the Japanese general staff planned to take and occupy Wuhan to finally crush Chinese resistance. Some 400,000 Japanese troops were deployed in two armies massed for the attack on Wuhan. They faced an army of 800,000 Chinese troops. The Japanese army advanced from four directions, while the Japanese navy sailed up the Yangtze. They would encircle and destroy the Kuomintang army, as Hannibal had done to the Romans at the Battle of Kenai. The Chinese, though, would not fight a decisive engagement and would retreat any time the Japanese threatened encirclement. Nevertheless, tens of thousands of Chinese died fighting the Japanese, including nine generals. In a controversial and desperate move to halt the Japanese advance, Chang ordered the destruction of the dikes on the Yellow River in an attempt to slow the Japanese and destroy the major rail junction in the area. The subsequent flood destroyed an estimated 70,000 square kilometers of prime farmland and led to the deaths of an estimated 900,000 Chinese, creating an additional 3.9 million refugees. In one act, Chang killed more Chinese than the Japanese had despite all their atrocities up to that point. The Soviets also took some pressure off the Chinese as the Soviets and Japanese fought a pitched battle at Chokun Cho. Like between Japan and China, the Soviets and Japanese had fought a number of border skirmishes since 1931. The Soviets accused the Japanese of encroaching on their territory and deployed 21,000 troops against 3,000 Japanese at a place 70 miles south of Vladivostok. After a month of fighting, the Japanese withdrew and a ceasefire was signed. Nevertheless, the Japanese had to redeploy troops from China to the border with Russia. Neither the flood nor the Soviet moves on the border prevented the fall of Wuhan, though. By this time, the excitement of the first Chinese victories had worn off. Mao called for a war of attrition against Japan. He warned to those Chinese who had cheered and welcomed war against Japan that it would not be a short or easy victory. Moreover, to those who had questioned Chinese victory, he explained that only through a war of attrition and national liberation could China defeat Japan. The conquest of Wuhan, though, did not elevate Japan's strategic position in China. They were no closer to victory after they had taken Wuhan than before. The Chinese nationalists just re retreated deeper into China and relocated their capital to Chongqing. The Japanese subsequently decided to wait the Chinese out and siege the rest of China with a bombing campaign. China was divided into zones of occupation. Japanese forces would only launch offensive operations in central China to the extent necessary. Chinese guerrilla warfare and the disruption of Japanese forces in the far-flung war zones across China also compelled the Japanese to spread their forces out, ensuring that no single Japanese operation could deliver a decisive victory. This strategy switch of sieging China's remaining cities may seem odd in retrospect, but from the Japanese perspective of the period, it did have some merit. There was some hope that after these crushing defeats, China would come to its senses and come to the negotiating table. The nationalist government, despite its accomplishments, wasn't universally popular. Chinese regional differences were strong and regional loyalties were powerful. 
Japan hoped the remaining regions would abandon their support for the nationalist government. Foreign intervention to save the Chinese was also unlikely. In September 1938, Britain and France were embroiled in the Munich crisis. They were weak-willed with Germany's territorial claims in Central Europe, their own backyard. It was unlikely that they would pressure Japan over its, its actions in China half a world away. They had already virtually accepted Japan's conquest of Manchuria when they refused to act in a concrete way after Japan walked out of the League of Nations. Moreover, Japan had carefully avoided interfering with Europe's interest in China, especially Western control of China's customs services, which controlled 50% of nationalist revenue, crucial to China's debt, which was held mostly by Western states. The Soviet Union, on the other hand, had provided substantial support to nationalist China, but had not become directly involved in the conflict. More importantly, Vung Jingvi became a major advocate for peace in 1938. Despite their personal differences, Chang was shocked to this core by Vong's decision. If you recall from last episode, Vong and Chang had a long and troubled history, but resolved their differences in 1931 when Japan invaded Manchuria. Vong had become premier of nationalist China and had his own cult of personality. He had voted for China to go to war with Japan, but had voiced concerns. He was a fierce critic of Chang's scorched earth tactics. He argued that war with Japan would cause massive destruction and in the end would only really benefit the communists. In August 1937, he joined the Loki Club, which held talks with Japan and Hong Kong in reference to ending the war. Vong had also assumed, given the nationalist defeats, that more leading political figures and generals would flock to the peace movement, securing his leadership of a new Chinese nation. This is producer Dave, and first off, I want to thank all our Patreon, PayPal, and Venmo contributors who helped make this show possible. Your help enabled us to buy books, web hosting, recording equipment, and more. And I wanted to make a special thank you this episode to Van and Gale, who kindly donated an acoustic audio equalizer. In addition, I wanted to recognize John Logan for kindly sharing the show consistently on social media. Thanks for getting the word out, John. Should you want to share, donate, follow us on social media, or see photos from our episodes, please visit www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com. One word. Now on to the show. Bong and the Japanese established a new provisional Chinese government. The new Chinese government had its own civil institutions, and it established its own banks and currency with its own state-sponsored companies. The Japanese even tried to create a new ideological movement in China, the New People's Principles. Throughout the Second Sino-Japanese War, the Japanese repeatedly sought a diplomatic solution. Making an average of four diplomatic initiatives a year from 1937 to 1940, with 11 in the peak year of 1938. Unlike in Japan's past wars with China in 1895 or Russia in 1905, they did not offer China generous peace terms. The more the military spent and the more men died, Japan's demands increased and became more harsher, which in turn made their peace offers unacceptable to China. In 1938, Japan offered the following terms to Vong, its provisional government. In exchange for the recognition of Japanese puppet government in Manchuria, Manchukuo, permission to station Japanese troops in Inner Mongolia, and the granting of most favored nation rights to Japanese economic exploitation of northern China, Japan would agree to withdraw from areas ca captured after 1947, recognition of China as an equal nation, respect for its sovereignty, and the abolition of extraterritoriality, and the eventual return of concessions. 
Although this offer by Japan wasn't endorsed by the entire Japanese government, it was more or less an attempt to begin dialogue. Nevertheless, the Japanese terms for peace were never made public, crippling Vong's push for peace. Despite the establishment of the provisional government, large numbers of Japanese troops remained in China. The provisional government was forced to pay huge indemnities to Japan and concessions of Japanese economic rights and monopolies. As time went on, it was clear that Vong was merely a puppet. Vong would die in November 1944 in Nagoya and was buried in the Purple Mountains in a concrete tomb overlooking the mausoleum of Sun Yat-sen. Upon the return of the Kuomintang to Nanking, less than a year later, they blasted open his tomb, dug up his body, and dumped it in the Yangtze River. Any vestige of Vong's existence was eradicated. Despite Vong's defection, the military defeats, and Japan's terms of surrender, which promised to return much of occupied China, Chiang was determined to fight on. Chiang also attempted to assassinate Vong, which resulted in a failed attempt at his life, which left him semi-exiled to Japan. In the end, no major Chinese politicians or generals joined Vong in his provisional puppet government. Nevertheless, the nationalists had sustained huge losses during the first two years of the war. Many of the most elite units, which had been painstakingly built up over the decade earlier with the help of the Germans, had been wiped out. Many of China's greatest cities had been captured and large stretches of the countryside occupied. Nevertheless, nationalist China remained undefeated. Chiang could still count on Soviet supplies as well, which arrived through Haiphong in French Indochina and Hong Kong, which were then smuggled to nationalist China. From 1937 to 1941, the Soviets provided 82 tanks, 20 anti-aircraft guns, 50 anti-tank guns, 400 trucks, 1,235 planes, 1,600 pieces of artillery, 14,000 machine guns, 50,000 uh, rifles, 300 advisors, 2,000 pilots, and 3,000 engineers and technical experts. Britain and America helped with loans. In 1939, the United States provided a $25 million loan, and Great Britain a loan for $750,000. Britain also built a road from India to China to supply the nationals with supplies in 1938, what became known as the Burma Road. This money and supplies were enough to keep China in the war, yet not enough to turn the tide. The Japanese, though, hoped air power coupled with their political efforts might tip the balance. Similar to Germany's attempt to bomb Britain into submission in 1940, or the American attempt to bomb Japan into submission in 1944 to 1945. The Japanese in the spring of 1939 attempted to bomb China into submission. Japanese army and navy squadrons bombed national cities, industries, and salt fields for two and a half years. The Japanese believed the destruction of China via bombing would drive the Chinese to the peace table and cost less in terms of money and lives than a push overland to capture Chongqing. Up to this point, the Japanese had used their air power in support of their ground forces in attacks against national supply lines. Now the main bombing effort would focus on bombing of cities and civilians, especially Chongqing and the new nationals' capital. Only in the summer of 1940 did Japan really become technologically capable of real terror bombing campaigns. With the introduction of the new A6M Mitsubishi Zero and the Mitsubishi G4M long-range Betty Bomber, these two aircraft were state-of-the-art at the time and even superior to most Western aircraft at the time. The Betty Bomber gave Japan the ability to carry out long-range sustained attacks against civilian population centers. Moreover, before the Zero, no Japanese fighter had the range to protect Japanese bombers on bombing runs to Chongqing. The Zero was indeed considered one of the best all-around fighters of World War II until 1943. 
According to Japanese records, some 27,000 bombs or 2,957 tons of explosives were dropped on Chokang, destroying roughly 20% of the city. Japanese losses amounted to 107 aircraft and 89 crew. Most of these losses were not the result of being shot down, but pilot error, equipment failure, and bad weather. The Nationalists did their best to defend Chokang and other key cities. Anti-aircraft guns were acquired, the population was dispersed, and the Soviets supplied 160 fighters to protect Chokang. Early warning systems were also put in place dependent on observation towers, intelligence outposts, and ground and radio communications. In Chokang, over 1,000 air raid shelters were dug each year from 1939 on. By 1944, half a million people could be accommodated in them. In the end, the Japanese bombing campaign caused serious damage but failed to drive the Chinese to the peace table. Despite the Japanese bombing campaign, the Chinese launched a counterattack against the Japanese to retake Wuhan in the winter of 1939-1940. Militarily, the Chinese sought to isolate and destroy a large number of Japanese troops and liberate a substantial amount of territory. Politically, the offensive was coming on the heels of the Vong defection and was meant to serve as a clear demonstration of the nationalist determination to continue the war. Initially, the attack took the Japanese off guard and scored some immediate successes. The Japanese were shocked as they had never seen the Chinese launch an operation on that scale before. Despite this, though, the offensive ended up having no long-term effects. Many nationalist troops performed poorly. They stopped their attack after only three days and failed to isolate the Japanese forces in Wuhan. The Japanese countered this by a surprise attack on the Hanoi-Kuming Railway, which was a major supply junction for the Nationalists. Chang ordered 19 divisions south to hold the railhead, including the 200th Division, China's only mechanized division. The battle raged for weeks, but in the end was a Nationalist victory. The winter offensive in the end had been a bold attempt to regain the initiative from the Japanese. It came after two-thirds of its troops had been retrained and re-equipped. After the attack failed, the prospects of another major Nationalist offensive seemed dim. Surges were now being felt everywhere, and Japanese bombing was damaging much of China's small industrial base. Rebuilding nationalist armies had also become a challenge, as many of their German and Soviet-trained officers had died, and the pool of volunteers had dried up. Many of those who did want to fight were joining the communist guerrillas versus the nationalists. Recruitment now required extreme coercion. Importing weapons and ammunition had become impossible, as Japan captured China's largest port cities, and conducted a blockade of the coastline. In the summer of 1940, Britain, barely hanging on against the Germans, closed the nationalist China's last source of supplies, the Burma Road, for fear of antagonizing the Japanese. The Soviets as well, having signed an armistice with Japan, had limited their support to the Chinese. The nationalists by the summer of 1940 had few options left other than to hold on and hope for better diplomatic weather. Despite the fragility of China's position, Japan was still no closer to victory, and its economy was also suffering as a result of the war. Rationing had been introduced in Japan, and Japan had failed to capture China's agricultural lands. Indeed, the lands they had captured, like Shanghai and Nanking, were dependent on food imports. Moreover, the occupation of China with its insurgency was an expensive burden on the Japanese economy, costing money and lives. Simply speaking, Japan lacked the manpower to successfully occupy China. The conquest of China was supposed to address Japan's needs for resources, but they had only exacerbated these needs. Japan at this point had two options when it came to China. A troop surge and drive to Chongqing, destroying the nationalists once and for all, or coming to terms with Chiang and withdrawing. 
Tokyo decided to split the difference and launched a temporary surge and then began a drawdown of forces to 500,000 troops, as these troops would be needed to conquer Southeast Asia in the coming war against the Allies. On May 1, 1941, three Japanese divisions invaded Hubei, seeking out the destruction of the Chinese 31st Army Group. The Japanese inflicted heavy casualties on the Chinese, capturing stores, supplies, and weapons. Nevertheless, debate broke out as to if they should hold the captured city of Yinchang or return to Wuhan. It was decided to destroy the nationalist arms and, and supplies and return to Wuhan. Nevertheless, the general staff later changed their minds and ordered the army to retake Wenchang. After this, Japan launched another failed attempt at bombing the nationalists to the negotiating table. The Japanese also launched a vicious counterinsurgency campaign. This was indirectly aided by the communist Chinese, who also eliminated nationalist guerrilla groups that they encountered in their regions. In 1940, the 4th Route Army destroyed the largest nationalist guerrilla army, and the nationalists retaliated by trying to push the 4th Route Army into Japanese-occupied territory. Moscow once again put pressure on both sides to cease hostilities. Despite the military defeat of the 4th Route Army, the communists made it into a propaganda victory as they blamed the fighting on the nationalists and argued that the real enemy wasn't their fellow countrymen but the Japanese. Nevertheless, the communists rarely fought the Japanese, and by 1943, most nationalist guerrilla formations had been wiped out fighting the communists, not by the Japanese. Meanwhile, the communists launched their first major offensive of the war against the Japanese, the 100th Regiment Offensive, which lasted through the fall. Small communist guerrilla bands attacked the Japanese forces all over northern China. Between August the 20th and December the 5th, illustrating to the Japanese, even if they forced the nationalists to the peace table, they were still a long way from winning the war in China. The communists as well faced economic challenges as a result of the war. To compensate, they became extremely adept at tax collection. Over the course of the 1940s, they transitioned from a financial dependence on salt revenues to a more diversified tax base, which included trade. They also expanded their production of drugs and made northern China the center of China's heroin production. By 1942, opium was the most important source of income to the Chinese Communist Party. Like the Nationalists, though, the Chinese Communist Party also overprinted its money, leading to inflation. Mao also published an important pamphlet that year on the future of China called, quote, On the New Democracy, close quote. In the document, Mao argued that China was a semi-feudal and semi-colonial society in which the bourgeoisie were too small to lead a revolution. As was illustrated by the failure of the 1911 revolution to establish a stable republic and the abandonment of revolution by the nationalists. Mao argued that China would have to pass through a democratic and socialist revolution, but because of the weakness of its bourgeoisie, the communists would have to shoulder the burden of leadership through both of these phases, and they would have to establish a new type of democracy, ruled by a government that represented the peasants, workers, the petty bourgeoisie, and the bourgeoisie, with a mixed economy and a rural land redistribution. In this way, Mao suggested only a few foreigners, large landlords, and capitalists could have anything to fear from the Communist Party. The state would only take over the large banks, industries, and businesses. He insisted that under the Chinese Communist Party, the state would look after over 90% of the toiling masses of workers and peasants, providing them with education and protecting them from imperialism and enhancing their prosperity. Mao also stressed that the Chinese Communist Party would support business and protect China's industries from foreign competition. 
Mao said that the Chinese Communist Party would restore the dignity and independence of the Chinese nation. Mao's plan of building bases behind enemy lines and mobilizing the people also started to pay dividends. From 1937 to 1940, party membership had grown from 400,000 to 800,000, while the 8th Route Army and the new 4th Route Army expanded to 500,000 men. This did cause some problems, though, as 90% of its new recruits were youths who fled cities to join the communists. They were not acquainted with the rural conditions. More importantly, Mao worried that many could be Japanese or Kuomintang spies. Thus, in 1942, Mao launched the rectification campaign. The campaign targeted what Mao called the three diseases, subjectivism, sectarianism, and party formalism. Subjectivism was a belief that a person could read Marxist literature and understand them on his own and in relation to China without proper guidance from the Chinese Communist Party akin to how the Catholic Church believes that a person can't be a good Christian by just reading the Bible. They need the guidance of the Catholic Church to fully understand the scripture. Sectarianism meant the protection of one's own fraction and ignoring orders from a higher authority. Regionalism had been a serious divider in Chinese history and had caused China many defeats in the past. The communists strove towards unity and group cohesion above all else. Party formalism was the habit of party officials writing long diatribes filled with empty cliches and generalizations, but which said nothing. The antidote to this poison was the collective study of 22 documents, five of which were written by Mao himself. The study of the 22 documents and self-criticism were designed to forge an individual link with the transcendental revolutionary truth, including a correct understanding of the history of the Chinese Communist Party and its importance in the history and future of China and the Chinese people. Only the Chinese Communist Party could be the agency of China's redemption, a cause for which it had battled warlords, imperialists, and the Kuomintang, who had begun as their revolutionary brothers under Sun Yat-sen, but had abandoned Sun's vision after they had become to power and now served the interests of the rich, warlords, capitalists, and imperialists. Rectification began at the top of the party and over the next two years moved down the ranks. Participants were required to keep diaries and produce self-criticisms. Party members reflected on where, when, and how, and with whom they had fallen into error, not just in their behavior, but also in their thinking. Because self-criticisms were preserved in the personnel files of each party member for the rest of their lives, the party could choose to punish them for something they had confessed at any time, an excellent way to ensure discipline and subordination to Mao and the party. Mao used the rectification campaign to consolidate his rule of the party. He compelled his critics and political opponents to submit self-criticism and acknowledge in public their acceptance of Mao's views. Most in the end did not put up much of a fight. By 1943, though, the campaign started to spin out of control. The Central Committee issued a directive that a large Japanese and nationalist spy network was operating in Yan'an, Innocent people were tortured and executed before Mao reigned in the campaign after apologizing for the excesses of the campaign on three different occasions. Nevertheless, by 1943, he was the undisputed leader of the party, towering over any other figures in the party. He not only reorganized the Chinese Communist Party through a distinct revolutionary strategy, but it had articulated a new understanding of China's past, present, and future. Mao embraced a Western chronological vision of history, which marked time according to the Communist Party, which was destined to bring China to a more prosperous and confident future. Mao also criticized Chiang's approach to the war against Japan. He condemned Chiang's use of scorched earth. 
He also argued against the nationalist failed attempts of holding the cities. He argued that China should retreat and fight in the countryside. While Mao gained in power, Chiang fought just to survive. Nevertheless, circumstances in China changed once again as a result of outside forces. Chiang's gamble to wait out the storm of Japanese bombing for better diplomatic weather finally paid off. Japan decided to declare war on Great Britain, the United States, and Holland in hopes of an easy victory and new sources of raw material to feed their industries and support their war in China. The war did not go well for the Allies in the beginning. Indochina, Malaya, Singapore, Hong Kong, Guam, the Philippines, and the Dutch East Indies quickly fell to the Japanese. India and the Burma Road was the key source of supplies for China, and Chiang had to help in any way he could to keep the road open. The Indian independence movement was threatening British control of the subcontinent, and if India fell to the Japanese, China would be totally isolated. Chiang immediately traveled to New Delhi. When he arrived, he faced a delicate situation. Britain was China's new ally, but anger towards Britain was widespread across India, and many sympathized with Japan. The Axis powers were openly courting the Indian National Congress, as talks between the British and Indians had broken down yet again. Chiang was by nature sympathetic to India's independence movement, but he needed Britain's help if China was going to hold on against the Japanese. He urged the British to grant India dominion status like Canada or Australia. He held many meetings with Nehru, who had pushed for closer relations with China since 1939. He urged Nehru to work with the British and to take a gradual path to independence, but Nehru protested that real power had to be transferred before he could support Indian participation in the war. When Chiang arrived back in Chongqing, he sent a telegram to Roosevelt urging him to pressure Churchill on India. Knowing Churchill's sensitivity on India, though, Roosevelt forwarded the telegram to Churchill instead to apply pressure indirectly. According to Roosevelt's son, Elliot, this telegram influenced FDR's and Churchill's negotiations around the Atlantic Charter and helped to pressure the British into dismantling their empire over the long run. However, the bigger issue of contention between Great Britain and China were the unequal treaties still in place. Japan was in discussions with the Vong about returning all foreign concessions to Chinese control, a huge potential propaganda coup for his puppet government. Under pressure from the Americans, the British agreed to conclude the new treaties on the basis of equality with the nationalists. Despite these diplomatic victories, the Chinese economy continued to worsen. The war and natural disasters had taken a strain on the economy. The nationalists continued to recruit 1.5 million men per year. Inflation was rampant as the nationalists had printed money to pay for the war. Before 1937, the nationalists depended on revenue derived from international commerce, excesses on alcohol and tobacco, and taxes levied on industry and in the salt trade. The war destroyed that financial foundation as well as the monetary system. China also faced a nationwide famine in 1942, which affected some 2 million people, many of whom were subsisting on grass, roots, leaves, and bark. China had been for centuries a food-importing nation, and following the Japanese victories of 1941-1942, the Japanese increased the physical isolation and embargo of China cutting China off from the international grain markets. Lobbying America on behalf of China was the glamorous Madame Chiang Kai-shek as she visited the United States from November 1942 to July 1943. Madame Chiang, a beautiful, educated woman who spoke fluent English with a slight Georgian accent, was an instant celebrity. Large crowds came to hear her speak. She was modern, articulate, Christian, progressive, democratic, and yet exotic and slightly mysterious to the American public at the time. 
She was in many ways a personification of how America had sought to influence China through education and charity since the beginning of the 20th century. Having grown up in the United States, Madam Chang was very comfortable in America. She toured the country and spoke to a joint session of Congress. In 1943, Chiang Kai-shek met with Churchill and Roosevelt as an equal power to talk about the future of Asia. Riding high on this diplomatic victory and an end to the unequal treaties, he published his own vision for China to contrast Mao's on democracy called China's Destiny. In China's Destiny, Chiang announced after the war China would implement constitutional rule. He also called on the nation to unite behind him now that the nationalists had done away with the unequal treaties as China was now a leading member in the new United Nations. If China failed to unify behind Chiang, and the nationalists, China would remain poor, backward, and a divided nation. The message was clearly aimed at the communists. It's important to point out, since the war, every major Chinese leader has published a collection of articles in order to formulate a distinct political vision unique to their times, usually summarized by a catchy phrase. Mao had on democracy. Chiang had China destiny. Dao Xiaoping had the four modernizations. Jay Ziming had the three represents and recently she announced the China dream. Chiang by this time had elevated himself to Generalissimo and General Director of the party, the rank Sun Yat-sen had held. It is claimed that he said that he was the center of the Chinese government, Jesui the state, and that the center of the Chinese resistance. At one point he held 82 positions within the government. He also eroded warlord autonomy over the course of the war as he executed many warlords and their armies were grinded down fighting the Japanese. Although Chiang still had millions of troops in the field, the repeated destruction of his armies cost him his reputation as a great military leader he had gained in the northern expedition and in the war against the communists. The Nationalist Party reputation for reform and modernity built up over the Nanking decade had now become synonymous with defeat and economic disaster. Without an economic base, the nationalists printed money to pay for the government and to fight the Japanese. Unavoidably, this led to inflation and economic collapse, sending businesses into bankruptcy and devouring the savings of ordinary people. Rampant hoarding, speculation, smuggling, and tax evasion exacerbated China's economic problems and the unpopularity of the regime. The government attempted to control prices by creating a monopoly to control all necessary products driving down profits and decreasing production, but this only caused more economic problems. By 1943, national soldiers and civil servants were living on 6 and 7% of what they had made in real terms back in 1937. Labor unrest grew, and inflation became a major political liability for the nationalist. As loyalty became a scarce commodity amongst his army and civil servants, Chiang turned to fear and violence to maintain control and order. By this time as well, most of the nationalist guerrilla forces had been wiped out fighting both the Japanese and the communists. As such, negotiations between the nationalists and the communists had broken down, and the nationalists had ended their support for the communists. The United Front lipped along in name only. This uneasy stalemate continued until 1944 when the Americans facilitated new talks between the two parties. If 1943 was the high-water mark for Chiang and the nationalists, 1944 was a disaster for nationalist China. When we think 1944 and World War II, it's often categorized as the second-to-last stage of the war. In Europe, Rome was finally captured, and the Allies pushed into northern Italy. In France, the Allies landed in Normandy and liberated Paris and the Low Countries. In the east, the Soviets launched a massive counterattack, driving the Germans out of Russia and into Poland and Eastern Europe. 
In the Pacific, the Americans retook the Philippines and broke the back of the Japanese Navy at the Battle of Leyte Gulf. We don't often think or remember the failures and setbacks of the period. Operation Market Garden, the Battle of the Bulge, the failure of the Warsaw Uprising. In the Pacific, the Chinese faced the Japanese Operation Ichigo. The objective of the operation was to neutralize the airfields of the 20th Bomber Command at Chen Go. Starting in 1944, the Americans started using these bases for strategically bombing Japan. This was before the capture of Saipan, and these were the only bases capable of staging bombing raids with the new American B-29. The secondary objective was to create a land corridor between Japanese industries in Manchuria and Japan and its resources in Southeast Asia. The defeat of the Japanese fleet and the American submarine offensive was making it difficult for Japan to transport resources, troops, and supplies throughout her empire. The new corridor would give them an overland route, avoiding the American Navy. Once this route was in place, Japan could begin to rebuild their forces, and by 1946, they could launch a counteroffensive to retake the Philippines. Finally, the Japanese hoped with enough momentum they could take Choking, defeat the Nationalists, and potentially even bring the Allies to the peace table. Japan mobilized half a million troops, 100,000 horses, 1,500 pieces of artillery, 800 tanks, and 15,000 mechanized vehicles supported by a large number of aircraft, Japan's largest land campaign of World War II. The Japanese cut through the Nationalist armies as if they didn't even exist. By October 1944, it appeared as if the Chinese Nationalists might collapse. Ichiko caught the Nationalists completely by surprise. After Pearl Harbor, the Japanese had wound down operations in China, redeploying forces. The Chinese, heavily damaged from their fighting with Japan 1937 through 1940, were short of everything, especially food. Chiang had ordered his regional commanders to become self-sufficient in supplying their troops, as they would be incapable of launching a counteroffensive any time in the near future. He urged them to raise their own livestock and grow their own grain. Chang's generals did this and more. They began smuggling their own goods to and from Japanese-controlled areas. They managed their own businesses and even operated their own mines and industries. They also deliberately kept their units under strength so that they could claim payment for many more soldiers than they actually had and pocket the money. It was understandable that the Kuomintang become entrepreneurial, but abuse was inevitable and it sapped the martial spirit of the army. When you ask soldiers to become part-time businessmen and farmers, it muddles discipline and the objective of the army, which should be the defense of the nation, not the creation of wealth. The army even began to collect the land tax, but forced by inflation switched to collecting it in grain rather than money. Only households with money were able to pay the tax, but inevitably they passed the cost on to their tenants and the powerless who came to resent the nationalist and their army. The army slowly decayed over four years of inactivity into a poorly disciplined mob hated by the Chinese peasants whose food they confiscated. Unsurprisingly, they crumbled in the face of Japanese tanks, planes, and well-equipped and motivated Japanese soldiers. Chang's best units, those trained and supplied by the Americans, were away in Burma fighting the Japanese to reopen the Burma Road to China. Compounding this, Chang's forces had no air cover. General Chenault's 14th Air Force had divided its forces between protecting the airfields of the 20th Bomber Command and assisting General Steelwell in Burma. The Ichigo Offensive also helped his political opponents, the Communists. The operation siphoned off Japanese troops from northern China to launch the offensive, allowing Communists to pour into areas vacated by the Japanese. 
Mao abandoned his policy of 3% of forces per the population, and over the next year, his army doubled in size to 1 million men and 1.2 million party members. His forces focused on attacking or winning over puppet forces, local militias, and bandit gangs. He did not at this point want to resume fighting the nationalists, nor did he want to take on superior Japanese units. The change in the military balance of power had serious political repercussions as it allowed the communists to mount a political offensive against the Kuomintang. The communists criticized the nationalists for the war going badly and called for a joint government and said that the new government should have authority over the military, a request Chiang would never accept. The communist historian Gu Moru also wrote a damaging piece in which he compared the fall of nationalist China with the fall of the Ming dynasty in 1644. The last Ming emperor sided with the rich and was corrupt, losing the confidence of his people and losing the nation to the Manchu. Chang, the analogy went, was like the last Ming emperor, siding with the rich against the peasants, and was bound to fail as the communists came down from the north like the Manchu conquering the country. The communists pressed for an increase in the size of their armed forces and for more funding from the nationalists. They also pressed for freedom of speech, democracy, freedom of the press, and assembly legal recognition of the Chinese Communist Party, and all other patriotic parties, the implementation of local self-rule, and the recognition of the communist base areas. The nationalists, in response, offered to establish a constitutional government a year after the war ended. The Ichigo inflicted not just military defeats on the Kuomintang, but also damaged the political and international reputation of the nationalists. China had gone from being one of America's favorite allies to a constant source of problems, disappointments, and concerns. General Steelwell exacerbated these difficulties between China and the United States. He was a difficult man to work with and held everyone in contempt except General Marshall. Personality clashes, politics, and racism all played a role in the Steelwell affair. He referred to General Chang as Peanut, General Wevel as a tired and beat-down man. He thought General Alexander was stuck up and Mountbatten a spoiled prince playing at war. He also hated his American colleagues, both General Chenault and General Wiedermeyer. In his view, the Burma Road was the most critical aspect of the war in China, leaving the rest of China relatively weak with little American support. The nationalists, meanwhile, faced Japanese forces six times larger than those by the Allies in Burma. As the Japanese advanced, demoralization, panic, protests, and paralysis set in amongst the nationalists as streams of refugees filled the roads fleeing the Japanese advance. The grain rationed to civil servants had to be cut, and instead they were paid in cash. But there was no food for them to buy. The New York Times predicted the collapse of the nationalist any day. Rumors of a coup against Chiang swirled through Choking. A group of southern Chinese generals approached the Americans about breaking away from the nationalist and forming their own nation. Even Chiang's own son, Sun Qi, was making plans to overthrow his father. President Roosevelt wrote to Chiang, asking him to pass command over to Steelwell. Chang was shocked because of the implied insult, as such a move would make nationalist China a virtual colony of the United States. Beyond that, he had very little faith in General Steelwell. Marshall urged Roosevelt to insist on Steelwell taking command, but Roosevelt changed course. 1944 was an election year for an unprecedented fourth term. Gallup predicted a close race with Dewey, the governor of New York. FDR didn't want an American holding the bag for a defeat in China, which would inevitably reflect on his administration and would be a boon to the Republicans. It would be much better for Chiang to own any defeat in China. Therefore, Roosevelt reversed course on Steelwell and had him replaced. 
FDR also manipulated the press to create a new narrative around China. The U.S. press during the war was censored, so very few Americans were aware of the disaster unfolding in China. The New York Times declared that Steelwell was recalled because of Chiang's anti-democratic regime, which was not committed to fighting the Japanese, and had become increasingly unpopular amongst its own people as a result of secret police, concentration camps, and the stifling of the free press. It's ironic and hypocritical that the U.S. would make such accusations against China, as the U.S. during the war had censored its press, placed Japanese Americans into internment camps, and expanded the powers of the FBI, which was illegally wiretapping Americans with the knowledge and approval of the Roosevelt administration. American papers also illustrated the growth of corruption and smuggling in nationalist China, but failed to mention the involvement of Americans in smuggling or the reasons why it had flourished in China. Army authorities had uncovered a smuggling ring which had been operating over the hump, or the air route, in and out of China. One U.S. pilot parachuted out of his plane with 10,000 in gold bars never to be seen again. Meanwhile, the Japanese advance into Guangxi province went virtually unopposed. The Americans replaced General Steelwell with General Albert Wiedermeyer as Chiang Kai-shek's chief of staff. When he arrived, the Japanese were not only in a position to open their corridor, but drive west and take Choking. Chinese troops were starving, and the nationalist generals were asking that he evacuate them and their families to America in anticipation that the city would soon fall. He counseled Chiang to evacuate Choking and concentrate on defending Kuming, the terminus of the supply line from India. Chiang told him that he could not abandon any Chinese cities without a fight. He could not surrender Choking and hoped to remain the leader of the nationalist movement. Wiedermeyer responded by stating that he would remain at Chiang's side come what may. To slow the Japanese advance, two divisions were transferred from Burma, together with nationalist forces brought in from other war zones. On December the 18th, at the request of Wiedermeyer, the 20th Bomber Command firebombed Wuhan, flattening the city, Japan's logistical and supply center for operations in central China. The Japanese general staff decided to halt the operation. The reason for the halt is debated, as some say the bombing of Wuhan halted the operation. Others argued that the capture of the Marianas by the Americans with the B-29s were now using had eliminated the primary objective of the Ichiko operation. With more supplies coming in from India, Wittemeyer began to rebuild the Nationalist Army. The U.S. trained and equipped some 36 divisions and 20 commando groups. With more aircraft and the 10th Air Force from India, Chenault and the 14th Air Force won control of the skies over China. Wiedemeyer got along fine with Chang and the Chinese and reported back to Washington that the problem was not with the Chinese but with Steelwell, who exacerbated the Kuomintang weaknesses with a total focus on Burma. The larger diplomatic problem, though, was that by 1944, China had become a sideshow to the United States and not a priority especially once the Marianas were captured and the Americans no longer needed airfields in China. Despite the vast economic power and production capacity of the United States, its resources were not unlimited. It had to supply its own forces first, and after that, the priority was Great Britain and the Soviet Union. China received $1.6 in Lend-Lease funds, far less than the $31 billion given to Great Britain and the $11.3 billion given to the Soviet Union. The U.S. and the British by 1944 had reneged on their promises to the nationalists as they decided their resources could be put to a greater effect in other theaters of the war. The conflict between Chang, Chenault, and Steelwell primarily boiled down to scarce resources because China was not provided with adequate supplies until 1945. 
From the perspective of the Allies, they might have been right to invest the resources in other theaters as well. Even with the opening of the Burma Road and laying of an oil pipeline, China lacked enough resources to push the Japanese out. Getting supplies to China via India was a logistical challenge. Cargo ships had to sail from the American East Coast around the Horn of Africa to the Indian Ocean and then dock in India. Then these supplies had to be taken by truck and plane to China, which was susceptible to bad weather and mudslides. Without a major port or rail line, supplying China was logistically challenging. During this time, Mao and the Communists had cooperated as much as possible with both the British and the United States in the fight against the Japanese. Mao wanted to garner whatever support he could now that he received little support from the Soviets and the Nationalists. The Chinese Communist Party repeatedly invited U.S. representatives to Yan'an. General Stilwell had recommended sending arms to the Communists, but Chiang protested, fearing that they would be used against him and the Nationalists once the war was over. The end of the Second Sino-Japanese War came as a surprise to both the Communist and the Kuomintang, but politically, both sides knew what the defeat of Japan meant and had been positioning for the resumption of their duel to the death once it became clear that Japan would eventually lose the war in the Pacific. Next episode, we examine the effects of the war of resistance on both the Communist and the Nationalist. We also examine the second half of the Chinese Civil War, 1949 to 1945, and how the Communist and Mao triumphed over Chang and the Kuomintang. If you enjoy this episode or any of our previous episodes, please consider sharing it on social media or with a friend. I want to also thank those who have shared the show with your friends and family. I know it's a small gesture, but it goes a long way in us getting more listeners. You don't have a lot of friends in the history, and you are already a contributor, but would still like to help the podcast, give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you want to follow us on social media, check out the pictures for this episode, ask questions or donate to the podcast, check out the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Well there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.